Hey, Shoshana here. I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library, and I just wanted to say how excited we are to bring you our very first episode of our very first podcast called Ipsy Stories. This is something that the library hasn't done before, and we really hope this podcast stimulates your curiosity in and helps you feel connected to your community, Ypsilanti. We're looking forward to featuring some really exciting guests. Some you may have already heard from, and some you may be meeting for the very first time. All of them will be sharing unique perspectives and stories. You'll be able to follow along and listen to each episode at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories, or wherever you find your podcasts. Happy listening! Hi there, my name is Shoshana, and I'm a librarian at the Ypsilanti District Library. Welcome to the library's podcast, Ipsy Stories. Ipsy Stories is a podcast about the history of Ypsilanti, told in story form by historians, academics, community members, and local experts. This podcast seeks to unearth stories and perspectives that may be new to you and are often unheard. Our hope is that by listening to these episodes, you'll gain better understanding of our collective past, present, and future. The views expressed by each guest are their own and do not represent the views of the library. In today's episode, we're going to be hearing from Jerome Drummond about early land speculators in the Ypsilanti area, including Lucius Lyon. Jerome Drummond is a clerk at the Ypsilanti District Library, working at the Michigan Avenue location, and is a member of the Ypsilanti Historical Society and the Genealogical Society of Washtenaw County. He majored in history in college, earning his bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan, Flint, has taught introductory genealogy classes at the library, and is writing a biography of Charles Rich Pattison. What better way to start off this podcast than by speaking about the beginning of what we now think of as Ypsilanti and other towns in the Midwest? The story we often hear is of pioneers moving west from the East Coast in pursuit of various freedoms. You, however, are here today to talk about land speculation, which sounds a little less idealistic, but gives us insight into how settlement actually worked. To illustrate this process, you're going to focus on one particular speculator named Lucius Lyon. Well, first off, I'd like to say thank you, Shoshana, for inviting me to your podcast to talk about history in our area. I've always thought that it's hard to understand where you are in life unless you know where you've been. So I always like to encourage people to learn about history, particularly the history of their own family and region. I'm sure the pioneers settled into the Midwest for various reasons, 
but we often are vague about the process by which they got here, as if they jumped in a wagon on the East Coast and went West. I can provide a few details. Before I talk about Lucius Lyon, though, I should set the stage. After the new United States had relieved the European powers of their claims to land in what would become the contiguous states, the lower 48, they made treaties with the Native Americans to establish legal title to the land, to establish why the federal government would be the first seller of land. I don't want to get bogged down in the details of that. We can save that for another time. It's an interesting subject in itself. Um, with the Treaty of Detroit in 1807 and the Treaty of Saginaw in 1819, a lot of land became available in Michigan for settlement. To sell it, the land had to be described and located, and this work is done by survey. Surveyors moved into the Northwest Territory from New England and divided the land using a system called the Public Land Survey System, or PLSS. This system divides land according to counties and townships of 36 square miles each, and is used today west of Pennsylvania to describe land legally. Just Google PLSS and you can learn the details. It is very orderly and specially devised to make locating and purchasing land easy, especially for purchasers from out of state. Surveyors were professionally trained and usually of advanced education, and their profession put them in an excellent position to see the development potential of land. The town of Saline, for instance, is considered to have been founded by a surveyor and speculator named Orange Risden, who surveyed much of southeastern Michigan as well as our beloved Michigan Avenue, where our Michigan Avenue branch of the Ypsilanti District Library is located. He thought the land in Saline excellent enough to make his own home there and to begin a town. He created a number of businesses and rental properties in Saline and is regarded as the founder, and in some ways he's kind of like the king. Surveyors were particularly well-positioned to speculate in land if they had capital. Let's talk a little bit about the career of one of these speculators who operated in Ypsilanti, Lucius Lyon. Yes, we have 30 minutes in this podcast to talk about Mr. Lyon, but I can assure you that it would take 30 days to adequately address all of the topics related to him. His connection to Ypsilanti is that he purchased a large piece of property which stretched from the Huron River at one end to where I live on Hewitt Road. He did not live here, though, but our land was part of his speculation. So what did Lyon do? When you say land speculation, what exactly does that mean? Uh, in the early 19th century, our area was virtually a wilderness, populated by Native Americans, uh, also, French and British traders left behind when our area was controlled by the French and the British, respectively, as well as adventurers and malcontents who could more or less squat on the land as they wished. Those were more or less homegrown. There was no real controlling authority. There was an incredible amount of land to be had and an incredible pressure to settle it. Ambitious people from the East Coast and the Midwest recognized that there was an opportunity to insert themselves into this process by buying large blocks of land, perhaps strategically placed, improving it to the point that its value rose, or simply holding on to it until surrounding land was settled, and then selling it to people who came later for a profit. That is what speculation is, and that is what Lyon did. 
they could then continue this process to the west or establish themselves in a locality where they could be big fish in small ponds. The elite class of your small Midwestern town often had their origin in this, and that elite class was highly visible as the wealthy didn't live in gated communities as they do today. They were proud of their accomplishments and their wealth and wished to be regarded as models of what could be done in the United States. Any sizable Midwestern town had some section of large houses with mansard roofs, servants' quarters, etc. You just mentioned an incredible pressure for land. Where was this pressure coming from? Several sources, really. The dominant industry in the United States in this time was agriculture. Before the advent of farming technology, agriculture was very labor-intensive, so farmers sought to have large broods of children who would grow into the farm's labor force. They did this even into my own time. My farmer neighbor, when I was a boy, had a family of 13, and his brother a family of 14. You might think that families that large would be chaotic, but actually, with so many children competing for limited resources and limited attention, it pays to be orderly, and so they were. Farmhouses are large for a reason. However, the farm would eventually be inherited by one child, often the eldest son, The daughters would get married to neighboring farmers or remain at home, and the sons would have to find their fortune somewhere else, which meant generally establishing a farm to the west. Often sons would work for neighboring farmers as hired labor, or as often called hired hands, until they saved enough money to purchase land out west, where it was cheaper. Many of the settlers of Ypsilanti did just that, working for several years in New York State or Vermont, say, then coming to Michigan. You would be amazed at how many of them walked here from Vermont or New York. We think of them as coming in wagons or on boats, but actually a number of them, usually a single man, got a knapsack and walking stick and put some money in their pocket and actually walked the Indian trails from out in New England area to Michigan. It just boggles my mind that they did that. Um, these settlers were homegrown in New England and New York State, principally in Lyons time, but they would soon be joined by immigrants, starting with the British Isles. Another source of pressure was the federal government, which gained most of its budget from the sale of land. In a country founded in part on tax rebellion, it's in character that citizens right from the start didn't wish to pay taxes. So the government built its budget on import tariffs and land sales. If the federal government wanted to spend money, this is one of the few sources of revenue available to it. The federal government also realized, particularly after the War of 1812, that it was one thing to say you own vast properties and another to be able to defend them, as the American Revolution and the War of 1812 demonstrated. They wanted to get defenders on the land as soon as possible, to form militias against British incursion. The British were doing the same thing across the northern border, and for the same reasons. They knew that there are people in the United States who would have liked to have had Canada too, which was not independent in Lyons' time, and had a large population of loyalists to the British crown who did not agree with the American revolutionaries and fled the East Coast to the United States. Today, they're usually referred to as United Empire Loyalists in genealogical circles. 
The United States was very sensitive to its position in the world and was always working to be a player on the world stage. Weakness, they felt, invited foreign meddling. You know, we are accustomed in our own time to having friendly relations with Great Britain and Canada. But the federal government continued making contingency plans up to, I believe, the 1930s in case of war between the United States and Great Britain by way of Canada. So back to Lucius Lyon himself. Where did he come from? And how did he get into this business of land speculation? Well, Mr. Lyon was one of those people from the East Coast who sought his fortune in the West, settling in the city of Detroit in 1821. Although Mr. Lyon came from farming stock, he achieved more advanced education than that would suggest to modern people, and also apprenticed to a land surveyor. He was part of the surveying of the Northwest Territory in Michigan, Ohio, and elsewhere. I think he may have worked as far as Iowa, at least I believe that's the case. He rose to considerable importance in the federal survey process and understood the land and what could be done with it quite well. I can't identify his source of income for speculation. It could be through family, through his own investments, or as an agent for the more well-to-do. It may also have been a consequence of his political career. I'm not a Lucius Lyon expert, per se. I am writing another history, and he just happens to show up. He had a political career? Could you tell us more about that? Mr. Lyon's career was extensive. He was elected as a non-voting representative to Congress in 1833, where he submitted a request for statehood before Michigan qualified in 1837. He also helped draft Michigan's first constitution in 1835. Later, he was both a senator for Michigan as well as representative, so he had extensive connections with both federal and state government. He's also considered a founder of Grand Rapids, where he owned considerable property. He wanted to name the town of Grand Rapids Kent, but he lost that battle. He didn't get everything he wanted. There were other powerful people uh, around Grand Rapids at the time. They erected a statue to his memory in the downtown of Grand Rapids recently. You'll also see his name represented in other parts of Michigan, such as in the town of South Lyon. So it sounds like Lucius Lyon had quite a career. For sure. We may not look so favorably on someone like Lucius Lyon today. A speculator, after all, has a kind of aroma to it. But in his own time, among his own generation, he was a hero to many. From the perspective of settlers, he was filling the heathen wilderness with productive Christians of frequently an evangelical temperament. They felt, very strongly, that they were bringing the light to the forest, that they were progressive. The desire for self-improvement and concern with the improvement of society and the country were what they wanted, and they brought this spirit out of New England. If they attained wealth and in the process, so much the better. More conservative elements in the country at that time were states' rights-oriented, centering more in the South and the Democratic Party, which did not believe in the federal transportation improvements and other developments by which the interior of the continent could be exploited, such as the Erie Canal. They didn't trust in central government and didn't feel that any state which was not directly benefiting from federal expenditures should have to pay into the effort. This divide is the prelude, in some ways, to the Civil War. We hear echoes of these ideas today. Mr. Lyon shows up favorably in the Detroit Free Press in his time, the freep being a creature of the democracy, 
as the Democratic Party was called in olden times, and Mr. Lyon a Democrat. In 1850, a new constitution was being adopted to replace the first one of 1835, to which, as I say, Mr. Lyon was a contributor. He sought to inject his own interests into the new constitution, and his ideas are covered in a Free Press article of July 26, 1850. Presumably his ideas would be good for him and other speculators. In the article, of which I'm going to share some excerpts, Mr. Lyon recognizes that approximately 9 million acres of Michigan have been sold to date in 1850, with another 25 million remaining in the possession of the federal government. He estimates that two-thirds of these 25 million acres would be suitable for settlement. Other lands, the western Upper Peninsula in particular, are somewhat swampy, stony, and uh, covered with acidic boreal forest. Not exactly the ideal, which incidentally would be Ohio or southern Wisconsin. I lived in southern Wisconsin for some years, and the soil there is very fine and very rich and can grow anything. That's what farmers wanted. He requested the state of Michigan purchase from the federal government these acres and build a system of basic roads to reach them, costing, he estimates, about $76,000, which would be contributed by the state. Lands on either side of the roads would be granted to private companies to finish the roads, and these companies could then profit by selling the land to immigrants. And if the state should establish, quote, an efficient emigrant agency in Europe, there's no reason to doubt that a very large proportion of all the immense immigration coming to the United States may at once be turned into this state, and that, by continuing in the same manner to open more roads as fast as needed, the tide of immigration will continue to flow in until all the good lands in the state are sold and settled. The Free Press approves, saying that, quote, Mr. Lyon has had the very best opportunities to form a correct judgment in reference to the benefits to be derived, and that this proposal, quote, has been extensively signed by the most influential and practical businessmen. Mr. Lyon points to evidence of the past when roads were opened in the state of Michigan. Quote, Settlements were rapidly formed along these roads as fast as they were opened. Our territory increased wonderfully, in wealth and population. To sum up, Mr. Lyon states, quote, But surely no citizen of Michigan who loves his state can think of resting satisfied with a system which withholds nearly three-quarters of it from taxation, opens no roads, and does nothing to promote its settlement, and threatens it to remain, according to the average sales of the last ten years, to remain in that state for 744 years before it withdraws its blighting effects. This is a very dramatic way of putting it, worthy of any seasoned promoter. So we see that in Mr. Lyon's universe, the goal of Michigan land policy should be to settle all parts of the state with productive citizens from border to border in the pursuit of wealth and in a way favorable to the wealthy, with limited assistance and rights on the part of the federal government. There is here an idea very prevalent uh, in the British society, that fallow land was not producing a benefit to the society as a whole. Prosperity is to be wrested from the land by what they refer to as industry, or working to a goal. 
A very powerful force in American history is this belief in the virtue of industry. Industry has a religious patina, as in the adage, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. To be busy and productive is an ideal from which wealth and other material blessings flow, and time for sinning is minimized. This is Puritanism in action, really. So to address an idea from the beginning of this podcast, the majority of settlers in Lyon's time were from the old British colonies, and there were forces behind them propelling them west, an internal migration. Like the migrations from the south to the north in the early 20th century, or in my time, the migrations of young people to Texas and Tennessee from the north looking for jobs. When the Detroit Tigers were experiencing the roar of 84 in 1984 and would play the Houston Astros in Houston, there are almost as many Tiger fans in the stands as there were Astro fans. That's because of all the people who left Michigan in the early 1980s seeking employment in Texas. Americans are quite mobile and vote for new opportunities with their feet. By the time of Lyon's article in the Freep in 1850, pioneers were often recruited by agents in Europe to fulfill existing plans of settlement. I don't know how American land was promoted in this period, but I am familiar with some materials in the latter part of the 19th century, often featuring a cornucopia of farm produce and an idealized scene of a farm with trees and a beautiful sunrise which may not have been apparent when you immigrated from Sweden to a sod house on the prairies of Kansas in the 1880s. It wasn't a hard sell, though. Europe was pretty much owned, lock, stock, and barrel, and it was very hard to get land if you didn't inherit it. You could have to walk in their shoes to understand how amazing it was to go to America and easily own acreage you couldn't dream of in Europe. And when you got here, the land was already surveyed, and you could purchase it from the federal government at a land office set up for the purpose, or from private individuals, speculators, large and small, if you wanted certain improvements, such as a small cabin or some cleared land or a handy town nearby. Settlement in Ypsilanti begins in earnest, really, in 1824, and in only a couple of years, it could be seen that the town was going to go somewhere and the land increase in value. So how did Lucius Lyon fit into the history of Ypsilanti? And what about other speculators? Well, Mr. Lyon purchased a very large piece of property here in the 1820s. This property was the majority of what is called French Claim 690. More than 500 acres he had, owned at the time by Judge Augustus Woodward, an important figure in Michigan history we may talk about some other time. It was formerly owned by perhaps the first named settler in Ypsilanti, Gabriel Godfoy. I myself live on North Hewitt Road, and the lot I live on is described legally, in survey, as part of French Claim 691, adjacent to 690. These French claims, of which there were four, were each about a half mile wide and two miles long and so stretched from the Huron River on one end out to the distance of Hewitt Road on the other end. My neighbors who wonder why their lots are rhombuses and not rectangles owe it to the original structure of the French claim. In Mr. Lyon's time, there were other speculators here, such as the aforesaid Augustus Woodward, as well as Titus Bronson, 
Mr. Bronson sold his Ipsy land and moved west to found the town of Bronsonville, which in our own time is called Kalamazoo. Mr. Woodward is one of the founders of the University of Michigan, and incidentally, Mr. Lyon was one of its first regents. Mr. Woodward is also famous for allegedly naming a town or village on the Huron River, Ypsilanti. Mr. Lyon held his Ypsilanti property a short while, and I'm not clear on whether he realized a profit or not. This is like the game Monopoly. You collect properties as you go around the board, according to your available cash, and your strategy, and your luck. We get hotels up quickly on the least expensive properties, Baltic and Mediterranean, and bleed your opponent dry when he lands on them before he has enough cash to survive, or go to Park Place and Boardwalk, and hope that you survive long enough to get hotels on those to strike your opponent a devastating blow and become the king of the board. Monopoly is based on 19th century ideas of business. You can think of Woodward, Lyon, and Bronson as sitting around a Monopoly board trading properties back and forth. This was land speculation, and it was widespread in the United States and Canada at the time. Just for the interest of your uh, listeners today, uh, although I I have not accessed them myself, you may like to know that many of Lucius Lyon's personal and professional papers are housed at the University of Michigan in the William L. Clements Library. His career as surveyor, senator, congressman, and land speculator are included. Of particular interest are his dealings with the Ojibwa, or Chippewa Indians. Well, thank you so much for being my guest on this first episode of Ipsy Stories. Thanks very much for inviting me to your podcast. I hope we can do it again. I once attended a program by a local historian who knew a lot more about the 20th century than he did about the 19th. He began by saying that there was not much to talk about concerning Ypsilanti in the 19th century because it was just like most small towns in the Midwest. That is simply wrong. 19th century Ypsilanti has all sorts of gems, and I hope you'll uncover some of those in this podcast series. Thank you so much to Jerome Drummond for sharing this history with us. A special thank you to local musician Annie Palmer for providing music for this podcast. You can check out more of her music at anniepalmermusic.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening to Ipsy Stories. If you liked what you heard today, please consider subscribing and telling your friends and neighbors about this podcast. You can subscribe to Ipsy Stories wherever you find your podcasts. You can also explore previous episodes with additional resources at ipsylibrary.org slash ipsystories. If you have ideas or story suggestions, you can get in touch with me at shoshana at ipsylibrary.org. That's S-H-O-S-H-A-N-N-A at Y-P-S-I-L-I-B-R-A-R-Y dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.